episode of Poetry Says. I'm Alice. Thanks so much for downloading this one. I'm really excited to share this chat with you. I had the opportunity to talk to a new friend of mine, Alistair Baldwin, who I met doing improv classes. I've just started doing improv this year and it has given me the opportunity to not only get over minor things like how nervous I can be talking to people in a shop, um, but also to improve uh, things like getting up in front of a mic and introducing poets, which is something that I now do once a month. But more than any of that, it's given me the opportunity to meet some amazing people, some incredibly funny people, like the kind of funny that you're just, you're just speechless. You just don't know what to say, where to look. You're just like, how did they come up with that? And yeah, Alice is definitely one of those. So I was just so pleased that he was keen to chat with me. And we talk about a huge range of things in this discussion. We start off by talking a bit about the practice of writing your own bio. So something that you have to do as a writer, as a poet, if you submit something even, often you have to submit the bio. And God, if that doesn't take the wind out of your sails, right? Like. You're all excited, you've got your piece ready, and then they say, also, could we have a 100-word bio? And you're just like, oh, no. But Alistair is a master of the bio. If you Google him, you'll come up with uh, a couple of different examples. And his Twitter bio at the moment says, Alistair Baldwin, writer, comedian slash MC, muscular dystrophy haver, suffering monetizer, host slash producer at Lemon Comedy, Melbourne-based personality, rainbow emoji, and script developer. Yeah, so we chat about how difficult it can be to have to present yourself through something like a bio, which is so two-dimensional. It's so not you, and yet there's so much like cachet attached to it. People make all kinds of judgments based on it. I'm sure when I read that to you, you're starting to come up with an idea of like who this person is. So we talk a lot about that to start with and also about a couple of pieces that Alistair's written recently, one of them for Archer, which is called My Disability Helped Me Embrace My Queerness, Reevaluating Masculinity Through the Gift of Weakness. And we talk a little bit about a piece that Alistair wrote for SBS Comedy at the start of this year uh, called Disability Impressions Offensive Decrees Meryl Streep to Room of Award-Winning Disability Impressionists. That's a really fun read. Definitely recommend that one to you. So after we have a chat about bios and about the life of being a writer and living in the world as a writer and your public and private self, um, we talk a bit about moving away from where you're from and joining a different community and what that can mean and the pros and cons of that. And then we talk a bit about enjoying what you're writing and how important it is for an audience to feel that enjoyment um, whether it's a case of writing something funny or serious just feeling that um, connection between your subject and yourself as the writer and then we get into the question of the poetry comedy continuum and poetry performance and audience and all that kind of good stuff so there's a lot in here to enjoy and at the very end we chat a little bit about some really fun and interesting spike milligan poems so look there's plenty here for you 
and yeah I'm just really excited to share this chat with you I hope you really like it enjoy strange and unique um, relationship at this point because we did an eight-week improv course together so in some ways we know each other very very well yeah because we've seen each other do some very silly things Mm. but at the same time um, no life details no life details (laughs) did you kind of specifically uh, make sure that you didn't find out about other people in the class because I sort of put a bit of a firewall around that I didn't Google anyone. I didn't really look at anyone on Facebook. I was just like, these people are just people that I'm doing improv with and that's it. I don't want to know. (laughs) What's so interesting was like meeting people through improv. I guess the main point of it is like talking complete bullshit and stuff like that. So even like after class or outside of class, I'm like, if I were to have a conversation with people, it would never be about like, reality or stuff like that it'd yeah be, not like serious stuff not serious stuff yeah it'd, yeah it'd be like cracking jokes or stuff like that so mm. Mm. i mean i don't know it is interesting but also i guess the specifics of someone's biography it's um i know how interesting they are as opposed to their sense of humor and stuff like that but well that's the other interesting thing that kept occurring to me as I would do scenes with people is that you know little flashes of people's biography would come through you know Mm. I'd learn where somebody worked or that they had a wife or a child um and it just seemed completely irrelevant to their sense of humor it wasn't Mm. like the mums in the class had a certain mumish type of humor or anything like that um yeah and it's and that's so much about like improv giving you a kind of blank slate context where it's like like you know becoming a mum isn't gonna change your sense of humor completely but if that's not the length you're viewing someone through if they're embodying a dracula type vampire in a scene or something like that and that's what they are in that moment so Mm. in a way it's a good way to strip strip away all those like perceptions and context which like those filters by which we judge how funny someone is or their personality which yeah yeah which outside of a class is so much tied to you know like how many cultural references do you have at your disposal how quickly can you get your quip out you know that kind of thing um but yeah it's such a zone of permission i feel like that classroom is just like taught me so much about what's allowed, what's acceptable, um, and how far you can go before. I mean, essentially, yeah, you're, you're never going to really get told you're doing something wrong, I mm. suppose. Maybe you are, but like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but... just, there's just so much room to play and, mm. and try things. And really the only critique you'll get is when you're, trying too hard yeah, or something yeah. like that but I think yeah it's interesting that that perception and context stuff it's not just something that we put on other people it's something that we are conforming to ourselves you mm-hmm. know like oh what 
what kind of person am I? What would I do? Or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, it's that being given the permission to embody other characters, which mean that the full three-dimensional complexity of who you are probably comes through more than when you're going through life and you're like, mm. I'm Alice, um, walk into the shop. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, you have a car, so that wasn't yeah. a good example. Yes, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, but that's, I think that's particularly interesting when it comes to writing. I think the persona that we have as writers is particularly flat sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I do know about you now, since looking at your work online, is that you're a writer and a comedian and um, you have a particular talent for writing hilarious bios. Uh, thank you so much. That's <laughs> actually really my primary literary form is the bio. <laughs> the bio. <laughs> I think that's where it really, um, my voice really comes through. Oh, look, it's, they're hard to write though. They're very hard to write. And, and in reading yours, I kind of get this um, sense of things that you want to kind of dial up and dial down. Mm. Um, but yeah, in a way, it's it's kind of interesting because as we go on to write more and publish more, so you've been published in Archer, you're going to be published in Lifted Brow very soon, mm-hmm. and uh, you have a hilarious piece about Meryl Streep on SBS Comedy as well. Yes, the now extinct SBS Comedy. Yeah, which really sucks, yeah. But yeah, so I, I don't know if, if you feel this way, but I'm kind of interested in this thing of like, there's this you that exists online as a published person and that's a person that people can Google, Mm. they can judge, occasionally they might feel maybe jealous of. Mm. Um, Ideally. Yeah, ideally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, if if that's the main point of my bio is it's like, how can I really give someone the shit for being on me? (laughs) It's still the maximum (laughs) jealousy. But yeah, I mean, it's nothing really, it's not nothing to do with you, but it's so far removed from daily life sometimes, you know, Mm. when you sum yourself up that way. Uh, There's a a poet here in Melbourne called Ian McBride, and his his working bio is essentially the standard bio format, you know, Ian McBride is a blah, 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 Mm. but all the actual detail is just a bunch of bold X's. Right, (laughs) redacted. Redacted, like, this is all just essentially dick measuring like yeah. it's just not it's Absolutely. not useful so i don't know really what my question is there but it's kind of i'm observing this kind of like uh, this persona mm. kind of gets built up online what's so interesting that like bios well like people write their own bios like it's very rare i guess some publications will do it on your behalf but it's just so funny to me that bios are written in this kind of detached third-person objective, quote-unquote, tone. Yeah. Why are they written in third-person? It's just so hilarious because it's like just the image of someone sitting at their laptop describing themselves. And I couldn't imagine for a second me doing that without my, I don't know, sense of self-awareness and sarcasm coming through. Like, Mm. it's so weird and it's like you know sure you have this kind of checklist of the Aussie literary publications that you've Mm -hmm. been published in but I mean to a point 
sort of hundreds of other people being published in those publications. Like, it's not kind of the thing where you're like, oh, you've been published in Overland and Archer, so I can figure out what your personality is from that. It's like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Bios. But I think people do though. I think I think if you had if you quoted those two things, I'd be like, oh, okay. Mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to make a little political homosexual. <laughs> political homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, um, and what an incredibly flat and and mm. useless assumption that is. But that is probably where my mind's going to go. Yeah, and it's just yeah. so weird that it's like, if you're a writer. Your bio is just one of the things that you've written. So it shouldn't be boring unless you're boring. It's like, <laughs> I mean, a bio, it gives you such a like better sense of a person if their tone is in the bio rather than these arbitrary like accomplishments or something like that. Mm, I just want to go back and rewrite all my bios now that you said that. I think yeah. that's so true. I should... um. This is my business proposal. I'll write people's bios for them. You're going to get flooded. Oh, my God. With, with requests. Well, I mean, in terms of, like, writing that I actually make money from, I do a lot of, like, copywriting. Mm. So I'm very... I'm always fascinated by, like, commercial writing or, like, um, marketing and that kind of, like... I'm so interested in what people's brand is Mm -hmm, and how mm -hmm. they brand themselves Mm. and how, in a way, you're a product and... But are you writing things which are... Like, I think in the early stages of being an emerging writer, you're just like, what can I write? Where can I pitch it? Or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I find it so interesting that, like, five, ten years in, you'll have this portfolio of work which will be, like kind of put you in a box of what kind of writer you are and how self-conscious are people about that about yeah. being like if i keep writing for archer and overland <laughs> people will be like oh we actually we need someone to do a poem about the postal plebiscite so what's the we'll get alistair we'll get alistair some kind of political <laughs> homosexual i haven't yeah. been published in overland yet though so um Fingers crossed. Matter of time. It's a matter of time. Just keep submitting. I am a subscriber though. It's a great publication. We love you, Overland. We love you. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, Yeah, bios, I mean, I think just everyone hates them. Um, But being able to write a good one, I think is, yeah, Mm. it's a real talent because you've actually, you've stepped outside yourself and you've looked at that exercise Mm. with a sense of humor. So, yeah, I think... Now, I sort of, since I've started doing more, like, arts criticism or, like, writing about plays and theatre and exhibitions and stuff like that, I've had to start including that in bios. So I think in my... But it's just so hilarious. Like, I think that's... I guess the stereotype of what a critic is is so specific Mm -hmm. in the sense Mm -hmm. that... If you've ever seen Pixar's Ratatouille, it's like the critic in that who's like yeah, yeah, yeah. just an old guy who wears a lot of black and hates the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just, I don't know, I find it impossible to self-seriously identify as a critic. Um, 
So I always put in it within like four air quotes or something like that, or like cultural commentary or. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that. Or I have to put a lol after it. To yeah, be cultural like, commentator lol. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I know, don't worry, guys. <laughs> yeah. But what are the things? So, um, do you feel like there are things that you have to keep out of that zone of yourself as critic, writer, um, commentator? things that are just not allowed in there like aspects of your life that you're just like that that can never be known i suppose mm. you're unlikely to say them to me now but <laughs> are there any things you would never tell anyone tell me now <laughs> tell me. well no. I, i'm trying to think how i would answer that question myself too is like th- things that i wouldn't like people serious literary types to know i do a fuck ton of yoga mm. um i have fancy ass leggings that I wear to said yoga class. Nice. Um, I am definitely prone to like drinking coconut juice afterwards. Like I'm that kind of nightmare sometimes and and I kind of hate it, but Mm. that is part of my life and it's, I can't really deny it. But if I were to run into the editor of Overland wearing those leggings, I think I'd feel pretty bad. Yeah. (laughs) It's me, bougie as fuck. That's Sorry, right. I keep swearing on your podcast. <laughs> I think I'm going to do a language warning in front um, of this one. Yeah, I'll stop now. No, no, and you can just right. bleep those two. Um, I definitely feel that where it's like where these full three-dimensional people, mm-hmm. but then if you're doing a particular event or something like that, it almost feels like the full complexity is like all this baggage or stuff like that. Like mm. it's so... I don't know, like I do stand-up comedy and I'm like, I'd be mortified if someone came to a comedy show having read my self-serious cultural commentary or stuff like that. I feel like that would be kind of cool though because you'd be sitting in the audience going, wow, this guy's smart and he's really funny as well. Mm, Yeah, but do people want both? (laughs) No, no. I I don't know, maybe. Maybe not. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I sort of... It's this thing about being pigeonholed where I'm like, what is... Like, when you're writing a bio, what is the first thing that you write? Mm. Alastair Baldwin is a comedian. Alastair Baldwin is a writer. Exactly, yeah. Alastair Baldwin is a critic. And it is context-dependent. Mm. My bios are pretty much different for each of the things that I write in because I'm like how am I an expert or not an expert but how how have I earned Mm. my right to speak in this context which is kind of messed up because you know some of the best criticism comes from comedians and Mm. some of the best poetry comes from I don't know well people standing a little bit outside of that that circle that can become absolutely very self-referential sometimes and i think yeah any of the art criticism pieces that i've written i think they're better for the fact that i've never studied art or mm. art history and that i am lacking a vocabulary or a cultural framework for dissecting stuff and i think how how much or what kind of different perspective 
can you bring to writing about an exhibition mm. if all your academic study is in screenwriting and film and television mm. like like when I'm describing a piece of art my direct comparisons are like Night of the Living Dead and like horror films and stuff like that as opposed yeah. to other pieces of art which means I don't know I guess it's very easy to when you're writing a piece of work to try and manipulate yourself into the type of person you imagine will be reading the work that you're writing mm. you're like I'm writing a piece of arts criticism so I guess I should take on the persona of an arty person but if that's not who you are then it's going to come across as kind of fake and boring and mm. also you're going to hate the process of writing it so I think yeah it's definitely I don't know I like to I guess I'm in a lot of different worlds as a writer but I also think that is more valuable than being purely in one world because mm. I don't know, people who are like purely poetry people and they don't do yoga. It's like, <laughs> who are you? Is like this all you are? That's not interesting. I know, I know some of you guys are doing yoga. I know yeah. you're doing it. Um, yeah, I, but that, I mean, that's not to beat this point completely to death, but that is, that is the exact effect of the bio is that you read it and you think, this person is entirely focused on being a poet and I'm mm. not. I've been at yoga today and that was an hour I didn't yeah. spend on my drafts. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. they just become, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I. The main thing that I want to get across in my bios before the fact that I have been published by the publication, so I'm a legit writer, mm. is that I don't, take myself too seriously no which i think unless you sort of i don't know yeah unless people are showing the sides of themselves where they like do poetry and they're like real people mm. it can feel like i don't know they're not real people That's yeah yeah you're just like this uh, paper cut out yeah the legitimacy thing is so interesting and it comes up a lot when i talk to people on here um, and I wonder if there is a relationship there um, in terms of where you're from in Australia because you're from Perth, I'm from Canberra mm -hmm. I think we both have a similar uh, way of thinking about Melbourne as the place we needed to come to to do the thing yeah um, the level up the level up story. yeah, yeah, yeah but so is there a, is there something in there about um, if you had continued doing what you were doing in Perth, it would be somehow not less legitimate, but like less challenging or like... Mm, I don't want to... That's interesting. I definitely think for the kind of stuff that I wanted to do and sort of have opportunities in film and television and screenwriting and stuff like that there's like the logistics that nothing is really made in purse but also I think it's interesting if you I see going back to purse I see people who are in ways beholden to 
who they were in high school because everyone is you don't get like a clean break from all those preconceptions or stuff like that yeah you don't need to remake yourself yeah and I think which I think a bit of renewal a bit of like burning stuff down so new life can grow I think is good because yeah I don't know it's sort of I think there's a there's a permission element, at least for me, um, just to speak for myself, mm. I definitely felt that I needed to be away from uh, Canberra because somehow people would see me doing this stuff. People would know that I was doing it and they would laugh at me mm. and say, who are you to do that? Yeah, you're, exactly. You're Alice Allen. You're, you're, you went to Farrah Primary. What are you talking yeah. about? Um, you do yoga now? <laughs> yoga you're wearing red boots you can't wear red boots you're a complex evolving person no no way not allowed person um even with this podcast i only started it went last year when i was out of melbourne when i was living Mm. overseas and maybe there was a way in which i actually had to um i had actually become bound by some of the conventions of this community and i had to Mm. get out of it to feel like oh it's okay i'm allowed like no one's going to come beat down my door and be like, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is just... It's pretty bad. So bizarre that, yeah. yeah, we're just like, oh, I need to... Yeah, you need to keep being... It's almost like you're playing yourself as like a character and you're like, what would I do or something like that? Yeah. And then you go somewhere where people don't know who you are and you're like, I can be anything, mm-hmm. but... I mean, obviously people can change at any time, but there is something refreshing about completely moving mm. and being like, like I was such a nerdy nerd in high school. You like cared about getting a good ATAR and stuff like that. And then I came over here and did like a fine arts degree mm-hmm. where the grades didn't really matter at all. Mm. You know, it's just one pretty lame example or something like that but yeah it's definitely and it's the same thing I guess with the bio is that the moment you get pigeonholed it can be incredibly difficult to like do something that's not your brand yeah exactly yeah yeah and that change of context yeah gives you the permission to do something new which might actually be you know, closer to who you are. Mm. Yeah. And I also think, certainly, and we were talking about this a little bit off air, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is definitely something about, I mean, the size of Melbourne compared to Perth, and it just, it's more, I don't know, it's more challenging or something like that or it's like it's cool coming to a huge city like Melbourne where you're nobody Mm. not even just in your immediate social circle but in a broader scheme of things where you know nobody you don't have any connections or stuff like that and you have to like put effort in Mm. and actually struggle a bit and through that you sort of really also discover what you're shooting for I Mm. think Mm. I don't know it's 
Because it, it's very intentional then when you start from zero. Um, it's not as if you're going to follow those kind of paths that everybody else has laid out for you back mm. where you're from. It's like, okay, I'm here and what am I going to do now? But again, yeah, not to not to diss either of these places no. at all. Or the people who yeah. stay there. I hate... There's this huge stereotype about the people who move to Melbourne and mm. then they come back and they're all like elitist and they're like oh, super so, fancy super fancy the mm. coffees are amazing something <laughs> like that like, there's no one more insufferable and also nothing makes me more uncomfortable than when people say I'm from Melbourne as opposed to just live here which is like a weird thing it's like Perth is so core to who I am and mm. I definitely feel like an outsider which I guess is another benefit of moving is that I really didn't feel like I was part of the Melbourne ecosystem so it was like well where what can I do to feel like that and that's mm. part of the ambition and part of being like what sort of writer do I want to be and stuff like that but yeah there's definitely I, any hierarchy between and Melbourne and Canberra and stuff like that it's just so boring and reductive mm. but for me personally and my goals Melbourne felt more aligned with what I wanted to do and I think it's important to proactively think about where you want to be as opposed to being I guess in a kind of inertia of I'll just live where I live mm. Because then, how much have you examined your life and goals and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's something really interesting you said in there about it's almost as if you're playing yourself. Mm. I think that's so true. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, improv feels almost like every time you go into a class it's almost as if you're doing that moving to another place starting from zero thing mm. um, you don't tend to know much about the people who are in there with you and every time you start a scene you don't know what they're going to do and you often don't know what you're going to do or you're not mm. supposed to um, yeah that that freedom and I'm wondering is are there things um, that you've taken from doing improv and that kind of more permissive environment that have influenced you when you sit down to write? Have you seen kind of... Oh, absolutely. I mean, purely I think just the speed and quantity which with which I can now write has vastly improved because I guess in improv, the main thing is that you walk into a scene with nothing, but you have trust that eventually you'll find something interesting and the moment you notice what that is you hang on to that and embody that or something like that so mm -hmm. sort of walking into a scene with no set preconceptions means that it's more of like it's like an archaeological dig into your you know subconscious and it's generative with another party and it's I know reacting to stuff mm -hmm. I think before a lot of my writing was not reactive to how I was feeling or a funny thing someone said or I guess I was less open 
to being inspired by the world. Whereas with improv, the only thing that you really have is how are you reacting to the other person mm. and what they're saying. So that sort of opens you up to being like some of the best stuff and some of the funniest stuff is like if you actually listen to people and pay attention and respond in a genuine, authentic way, mm. you like actually uncover stuff rather than planning it too much or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that, that authenticity stuff is so... I feel like that's probably changed a bit um, in terms of what I've been writing really recently. It's just like... I don't know, I, I look at some of the poems that... Even the ones that have been published, um, and I look at them and I'm like, where are you in that? Like, you're hiding so deep inside that thing. Mm. Who, who would have even the faintest chance of knowing what, <laughs> what's going on with you there? And, um, yeah, I don't know, like, the, just bringing some authentic sense of self into it, seem, it feels really important to me now, whereas before it was more about, like, what will the journal want? Mm. How can I get in? Yeah, <laughs> thing. absolutely. Yeah. And there is something about improv where it's, like, the best stuff without a doubt is the stuff that you're enjoying in the moment. Mm. Like when you're having fun in a scene, that's when audiences are loving it. And Mm. it's like, Oh, to an extent, like you should enjoy what you're writing and audiences enjoy writers or you're more likely to find an audience with people who are seeing that you're, doing what you enjoy and what you like and stuff like that. I can tell. Like, um, yeah, I've I've read a couple of books this year, uh, poetry books, and just I've enjoyed them because I could tell that the poet had so much fun writing it. Mm -hmm. And similarly, um, other books I've read this year, I'm just like slogged through because I'm like, well, this seems like it was hard work for you and it's it's hard work for me too. Not to say Mm -hmm. that it doesn't involve a lot of like slog, but mm. yeah, maybe there needs to be um, some kind of enjoyment to spark it off. But yeah, that was what I thought reading your um, piece about Meryl Streep as well. <laughs> because I, I didn't actually, I hadn't seen that um, speech of hers at mm. all. And so I didn't have any of that wider context. But it was just so clear that you were just having a ball, like just tearing yeah. <laughs> her shreds. And so I really enjoyed reading it. Well, yeah, well... There's no one who reads my work as many times as I read mm-hmm. my work. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I've read and reread that piece 30 times or yeah. something yeah. embarrassing and self centered. But yeah, I don't know. It's just. I think it's. Yeah, I think you can tell when someone likes what they do. Mm. And especially with, like, a creative pursuit, like, with writing, it's like, you don't have to be a writer. It's, like, not really something that people fall into or something, or something, like, that you do to make money. Certainly not that. Um, (laughs) So it's an active choice because you're passionate about it. So what are you getting out of it apart from external validation Mm. 
and a sense of I don't know accomplishment or something like that yeah yeah which very quickly starts to kind of fall to shreds I mean um that sounds really dark but like the more the more that you kind of the further you get along the line I think the more you realize this line never ends Mm. and uh I'm never going to get to a point where someone's going to give me a gold star and be like Mm. well done you're a real writer now like that that doesn't happen uh, so you either decide that you are or, or, or don't. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's one of the true beauties of improv is that it's like, it's not written down anywhere. The audience changes every night. Mm. You barely remember what you say while you're up there. Totally. Like I can't quote anything that I've said on stage doing improv because it's like, stream of consciousness weird absurd humor stuff so it's like Mm. it's so ephemeral that the only real thing that you can carry with you into the future is did i have fun yeah and that kind of memory of joy that kind of keeps you going and it's sort of like being able to apply that to writing where you're like and it doesn't necessarily mean you enjoy the process of writing but you have to have some kind of emotional connection to the process of writing like Mm. I love reading writing that I can just visualize the writer laughing to themselves or the writer is like crying or they're purging something or Mm. Mm. the process you can like visualize the process that they went through to generate it and Mm. you can sort of Mm. yeah see them within it it's sort of not got a weird detachment from yeah. someone over intellectualizing it. Yeah, they're just so close to it. I, I definitely felt that actually reading um, the piece of yours on Archer. Has mm. that just gone up recently? Uh, yeah, it was maybe published a week and a bit. Two oh, weeks okay. Ago. Yeah, oh, okay, so it's super oh, yeah. new. But yeah, it was kind of like. Um, it's very funny, but in uh, I think you you tweeted a link to it, and I think you said something like, "If I put two jokes per paragraph, will people not notice how earnest this is?" Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. It wasn't earnest, but it was, um, you know, deeply moving and like quite, quite heartbreaking in parts. Uh, and I could feel you there, like very much mm. inside that piece. Obviously, it's a personal essay, so mm. that's appropriate. But like. Yeah, you could just tell that that was... You just put yourself into that. Yeah, and... Yeah, well, with that piece, I just... I don't know, there's... I guess it's the beauty of writing is that, like, the moment you have to articulate your thoughts on something, you have to define it for yourself. And so it's Mm. like... I had all these thoughts that I was, like, aware of. Mm. But writing it, you sort of, like... It is like a weird emotional kind of purging opportunity where you're like, this is my opinion on this subject matter or whatever. Um, and yeah, and sort of like it should be personal, if it's a personal essay or not. I wanted to ask about stand-up as well. Mm. This is either going to sound like a very stupid and patronising question or... 
just draw a blank. Or the best question, <laughs> best question to ever be asked on a podcast. <laughs> but do you are you familiar with the work of Bill Hicks? Mm. Okay, right. Um, so there's my favorite Bill Hicks story comes from Mark Maron. Mm. He tells you sometimes on WTF. He's like, I had to go up after Bill and uh, didn't want to, obviously, because it's Bill Hicks. Of course. And he said, you know, I went to the bathroom and I came back and Bill Hicks was standing at the front of the stage yelling at a woman right in her face going, I'm a fucking poet. (laughs) 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 Which is like five minutes into the set, like there was no... Um, and who knows how apocryphal that story is, but I, I think about that all the time when I watch stand up because I just more and more I've become convinced that the best stand ups are doing a kind of poetry. Mm. And I have a feeling that there would be many people who would, would want to fight me on that. But, um, and I also think that, that sometimes the best poets are doing a kind of stand up as well mm. if, they're, if they're able to perform and deliver well. Um, are there people that spring to mind that would, would fall into that little Venn diagram overlap for you? Well, I think I'm a huge fan of um, Dylan Moran from Black right. Books. Yeah, His yeah. stand-up is hilarious and weirdly poetic. Yeah, some of his lines, they're just in my head forever now. Yeah, um, like my brain feels like a wet cake. <laughs> I think it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of feeling... Hungover. Yeah. <laughs> Bernard, I'm sorry. It was my fault you toasted my hand. Will you take me back? Please? Bernard, where are you? Bernard! Maddie? Maddie, I don't feel that well. I like I've been beaten up. I underwater I can feel bits of my brain falling away like a wet cake <laughs> could you help me I will Bernard I will Maria Bamford is on another level with her stand-up I don't know if you've heard any of her albums I've or seen her I to get into Maria Bamford I mm. think I need more time I'm, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not doing a great job so far she definitely I definitely when I first listen to her I was like it felt weirdly impenetrable or something like that yeah 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 but that is now what I love about it because it's like I don't know it's like I feel like I don't understand half of what she's saying Mm. but she's saying it the way that only she could say it I have dated a clown before and I have sat through five performances of a clown as Christ figure, clown crucified, red rubber nose, audience armed with water balloons, asked to scream Jew while throwing them at said clown Christ. If you want to talk about the deep discomfort of the arts, dive in. My only regret is that I, I wish I had paid to see those shows, but I was, I was on the guest list. So even when I'm like fuzzy on like the chronology of this anecdote that she's saying, Mm. it's hilarious because it's so specific Mm. to her. And then you get these kernels of something like universally human that you see within it. Yeah. And that's so beautiful because it's like, 
she's like I don't know like an alien or something like that but mm. then she's also like we're all the same on like yeah. a fundamental level even if I'm so different mm. the specificity thing I think is one of the important things that ties comedy and poetry together and it's funny almost exactly what you said I heard uh, another Victorian I think poet um, Claire Gaskin say one mm. time she was giving a talk and I, I've written the quote down so I have it somewhere but it, it was something on the lines of you know the specificity is what makes it real and mm. I think that's what happens in comedy as well you know the whole truth in comedy thing um, it's what make if it's what grounds a poem or a piece of stand-up and it's also what makes it uh, believable and relatable right because mm. you're like oh yeah that's exactly you know I've had that experience with you know butter in the Vegemite or whatever it is yeah. <laughs> kind of thing and it's like there is no theme that hasn't been discussed in abstract mm. by poetry by now yeah it's like you write like there are a million poems about love so it's like you can't just write about love. It has to be a specific love that you've experienced mm. because otherwise you're just treading this weird old ground. And also, yeah. can I believe that you've experienced this thing if mm. it doesn't feel specific to an experience or something like that? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's really about grounding it in an authenticity, if not reality. Like, mm. I do, yeah, like some satire writing or something like that, which is all just me BSing. But it has to be, you know, related to reality mm. emotionally at the very least, if not drawing from specific examples that people can identify as real and stuff yeah. like that. Well, otherwise there's no stakes. Otherwise mm. it's just like... Yeah, and also it's like, why are you saying this? Yeah. Like you kind of... I don't know. I love poems and stand-up that, like, if you gave it to another person to read, it would lose something. Mm, mm. Which, um, obviously not all poets do spoken word poetry or something like that, but certainly with stand-up, if you, like, did a transcript of someone's set and then mm. you gave it to someone else to read, it shouldn't feel the same because it should feel specific to that person and that perspective and yeah 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 the way they would tell a story yeah well that's why i think that it is a kind of poetry because it's it's as much to do with uh timing rhythm inflection um delivery like the, their presence in the room uh as it is to do with the content yeah um, and it's like like there's literally not that much difference between them. The only thing that really separates stand-up from spoken word is one is focused on humour mm. and one isn't. And there's this weird, I guess, literary issue or problem and you see it in the kind of, certainly the kind of Australian literature that gets awards. And it's like depressing dull stuff and it's like this sad kind of... things happen to, uh, in on yeah. the farm yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah 
rural emotion, um, but weirdly, yeah, weird sea change, um, middle class, rural experience, internal, emotional. Um, it's just so... <laughs> it's like, what I if, feel like we could do... Uh, yeah, that could be a scene. It's like, you do do the award-winning novel as yeah. a scene. <laughs> What's, and There's we, so many tropes. And it's just... And this country has some of the best satire writers around. I don't know if you've read any of Julie Coe's No. Writing. She did a um, short story collection recently called Portable Curiosities, which is oh, just yeah. a collection of satirical short stories. And it's like, it's so funny, but also such great writing. And humour is a convention that, people aren't using in their work when it is powerful and it actually makes something engaging. I mean, mm. you sort of, I don't know, I guess that's the function of satire is that people, people don't want to be depressed when they're learning about reality or something like that. Like mm. There is a kind of thing of like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down and mm. there's obviously value a lot of value in people being real and gritty and speaking from a depressing place of truth Mm. but also i think there should be more room for stuff that makes people smile yeah yeah well i mean i'm just such a twee no no i'm racking my brain as you as you're talking thinking who actually does that um as an as an australian writer with a following um, Benjamin Law springs Benjamin to mind. Moore, absolutely, and he's yeah. it's no coincidence that he's one of Australia's most successful writers. Yeah, and has a TV show. Yeah, because he's, he's funny. Because he's funny yeah. and likable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think especially in this kind of political climate. Although, I mean, God, it's a weird kind of generational egotism to think that you're living at a particularly important time in history. I don't know though. I, when like yeah. everything's constantly happening. There's yeah. not like weird apolitical times in history, but certainly it feels now. I was young in the 90s. I was pretty yeah, freaking apolitical. Pretty chill. <laughs> it was very chilled. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, we need more satirists, but we also, yeah, we need, I don't know, poets who are willing to learn how to be funny and yeah. sign up to improv classes and. Yeah learn a wider set of skills and learn techniques not just from the field that they have committed themselves to. I yeah. mean, my prose writing is only as good as it is because I do stand-up and because I've studied screenwriting and stuff like that. And, yeah, I don't know, it's like limiting yourself to just one kind of perspective or one kind of pigeonhole that you've put yourself in is, I don't know, quite limiting. Well, it, it, it means you're almost um, guaranteed to be, like, repeating uh, or, or remaking what you've seen done already. Mm. Um, like, I always beat myself up about how little poetry I managed to read. Mm. Uh, 
I, I do try to read as much as I can, but it, it's never enough. There's mm. always more books coming out. Um, but I think even if I sunk all my energy into reading and writing and just doing poetry, I think what I would end up with would be, um, yeah, just kind of very, very bland and, and, and probably derivative. Yeah, and, definitely. Yeah. And it's also like, I don't know, content is content. Like, I'm sure poets would find just as much value in listening to Lord's new album as reading like a book of poems and you know you should be engaging with like life and not just like one little pocket of it mm. and that doesn't mean you aren't allowed to have stuff that you're really into and like your thing and your favorite thing but also I don't know it's like people people are like complaining about this confirmation bias that's built into social media where like you're in a bubble where you're only really friends with people who share a pretty similar political perspective and you're not really getting a broad taste. But, I mean, the people who are complaining about that are only really doing mirroring that in the content they consume and stuff like that. And it's mm. like, I don't know, a weird derision of... or a weird binary between highbrow and lowbrow... Mm. content and stuff like that and it's like it doesn't sound like you buy into that at all like, no yeah absolutely not yeah I think um yeah I have I have a piece not to plug upcoming publications hello I I recently wrote an essay for Un Magazine which is like an art criticism magazine or whatever be coming out in August uh, uh coming out uh October mm. anyway um, but it was about how um, Australian art is already funny. We just need to add a laugh track, which is <laughs> just like this thing where it's like people, you sort of walk into an art gallery and your engagement with an art is informed by that context because you're like, Serious, You're, it's quiet, it's serious, white walls. Serious, it's quiet, yeah. it's white walls, and it's like such an echoey space. Mm. And like, Everyone can hear what you're saying. Everyone can hear what you're saying, and it's a weird thing where, like, I know this idea that if you laugh at something, you're not taking it seriously, whereas, but if you're suppressing laughter, you're not taking yourself seriously because you're censoring your own emotional reaction to something, and it's like, actually we need to stop putting these weird like very regimented contexts on art and mm. poetry and comedy and stuff like that because that's limiting the lenses that you're able to view a piece of creative work through and it's like what happens if you view a painting through a lens of is this funny does mm. this make the, me laugh? Is that less valid than viewing it through a lens of, is this art based on what I understand art to be from my art history degree? And it's like, <laughs> who cares? I don't know. It's sort of <laughs> a weird thing where, yeah, I mean, I, not that I go to many poetry nights, but I'm like, it should be entertaining as well. Like, it should be thought-provoking or 
don't know whatever people's intention is but also if I'm bored by it that's a valid reaction to it yeah like I shouldn't feel like I'm uncultured because I'm bored by highbrow quote-unquote art yeah yeah I think that's that's such a huge huge thing that you've just said there um because I think a, a large number of people would turn up to poetry readings and I run a poetry reading mm. now and and I know that there are moments that people in that room would be bored mm. um, and that's not even necessarily the reader's fault like mm. that could just be a function of the fact that they can't hear perfectly or mm. they're just the poem is not engaging with them specifically but I also think that there is a problem of poets um, not seeing themselves as entertainers as well mm. and that's a that's a big kind of garish word to throw out there yeah but like if you're up in front of a mic and you're reading your piece of work surely you want to do it justice surely you want it to connect with the person at the back of the room mm. but i'm just not convinced that everybody sees it that way i think it in a way it, it's sometimes Sometimes people get up there and feel like it's the audience's responsibility mm. to come and come and find this thing, you know. Um, mm. Whereas a stand-up would would never ever make yeah. that. Um, and assumption. I mean, yeah. Well, doing stand-up, you're constantly paying attention to the audience's reaction, mm. and you're manipulating your delivery based on whether they're vibing on a particular thing or whether you've stumbled on a line and they giggle at that or something like that. And mm -hmm. I think there's, yeah, a like conversation aspect to stand up where you're reacting to how they're reacting to you mm. and that's informing the choices you make both on stage and in the future work you make. Like, yeah, I don't know if I did a joke on stage and no one laughed and then maybe I'd do it once again to see if it was just that audience or whether it's something wrong with the jokes and mm. I'd be like oh this isn't funny mm. so I should improve it but it's a weird um, thing where yeah poetry a lot of poetry isn't in service of its audience it's tough because you don't have the laughs yeah, so but, it's like, what are you... Yeah, what are you looking for? Sometimes you're actually looking for a pause before people applaud because mm. you've shocked them that much. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you're looking for stillness in the room and, and eye contact. But, um, yeah, there's... I mean, you can tell when you've lost them too, I think, but it is, it's a bit more of a subtle thing. But, yeah, I, don't, I just feel really strongly that no audience member, especially if they're new to poetry should be in a room where a poem is being read and feel like somehow they're lesser or not mm. getting it because uh, everyone's doing a polite golf clap and they're like, what? That was bad. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, that's a thing. I don't know. It's sort of like, it's a weird thing with highbrow literary stuff where it's like, with poetry, it's almost like the biggest mistake people make with poetry is that they think 
if they don't understand a poem, it's something wrong with them, as opposed to the fault of the poet for being bad at articulating their emotional point or something mm-hmm. like that. And I was like, I don't know, because, yeah, I guess it's this idea of like, yeah, highbrow, lowbrow stuff. And I don't know, it's a weird thing where, yeah, I can imagine more people going to see readings from poets because they feel they should. Whereas with comedy, it's like, it's like, do you want to go to it or something like that? And that also plays into weird, like the cultural cachet that something like poetry has and comedy has that too. And now I'm just reinforcing this binary, which I was trying to tear down <laughs> five it, minutes ago. It pulls ago. you back in though. It's tough. Like it's, it's very tough. hard to talk about this stuff because, um, I want to have it both ways. I really want to, um, acknowledge and, and validate this feeling that people often have, which is like, uh, it's inaccessible. Um, I didn't understand it, therefore I don't like it. And, you know, I, I, I want people to be included in the poetry zone. Mm. And so I want to say to them, like, look, it's okay. Uh, you don't, if you don't understand it, that that's, that's not your fault. But at the same time, um, I don't want to reinforce the binary of like mm. only the accessible stuff is good. Yeah. Know, like, and also yeah. like where we were just talking about how you should be doing stuff that you enjoy. Yeah. So, what if you like doing super experimental sound poetry? Like, yeah. And yeah. it's like, you know, it's primarily in service of you and it's this weird tension of like, you should be true to yourself, but you, it should also be in service of an audience but mm. I mean that's the thing audiences uh, audiences can pick up on when you're at least enjoying yourself or you're at mm. least being true to yourself and I think that mm. comes across whereas I think sometimes poetry you can feel like someone wrote it to be this kind of weird puzzle cipher that like <laughs> only a select few people have the tools to unlock and it's mm. like that's fine, but are you doing that to impress smart people so you feel smarter? Or are you doing it because you actually have a point that you want to get across and this is the way that you and only you could articulate it? It's a weird thing and, you know, there are obviously poets who are good by the standards that I'm talking about and comedians who are bad by the standards that I'm talking about and vice versa and it's sort of unfair of me to say that poetry should be more like stand-up I think poets I think stand-up comedians should go and see more poetry as well I think yeah people like should just <laughs> people should just engage more in um, stuff outside of their field because mm, mm. these weird fences that we put between fields yeah, that's a metaphor. Um, <laughs> is um, they're BS. They're just yeah. They're unhelpful. I could literally make you talk for the next six hours, but let's look at um. You brought along some Spike Milligan. Yes. Hooray! What a f- funny guy. 
So I, I know very little about Spike Milligan. What's your Spike Milligan primer for those of us who are not well, super aware? Well, my dad had a book of his poetries, poems. <laughs> I'm a writer, guys. Um, had a book of his poems. Um, there was just all about like different animals. Oh, yeah. And they were, you know, four kids, but so, you know, Spike Milligan served in the war and a lot of his poems, they had a kind of jaunty, humorous, limerick vibe that you can sort of imagine he's sort of writing these. There, I don't know, there's something morale-boosting mm. about them, like they kind of are intended to be these little you know, pockets of art or something for, you know, people who went through the war and stuff like that. And, Mm. you know, some of his poetry is serious and serious reflections on the war and stuff like that. But also, they're just kind of funny and simple and playful and just widely accessible. Like, I was reading them as, like, a seven-year-old or something like that, and Mm. They're still good. Yeah, right. Um, Awesome. But yeah, I really... I think he's a good poet if you're looking for someone who knows how to use humour in poetry and kind of like... And it's the thing about you read something that you're like, I bet you had fun making this. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that with all of his poems because they're fun and not all of them are deep and not all of them are using comedy to make some deeper serious point. Some of them are just I guess a little bit superficial and fun but mm. that's allowed to I think poetry is really I mean I bet you've had I haven't listened to all of your episodes oh, I will on. confess what? it's unfair of me but <laughs> I don't know if you've dug your teeth into what is poetry? No, no I think that's off the table. <laughs> but yeah, if you if it's just I don't know, somewhat rhythmic use of work, like if it's just a form, mm. it doesn't have to be deep. Even though the majority of poetry is deep or seeming to be deep or mm-hmm. tackling emotions and love and darkness and stuff like that, and I don't know, I. I think Spike Milligan's great because he's the kind of poet who wasn't boxed into either being a kind of twee comedian who does kind of like, let's just do jokes for fun, Mm. nor was he a serious poet who only wrote about, you know, being manic depressive or being in the war or something like that. He did both and, you know, I've got two poems that illustrate either side of that and I think that's just a testament to someone not being pigeonholed into what their brand is, which means that his brand, keep saying the word brand, (laughs) but his brand is something bigger, which means he had the freedom to do stuff that he wanted to do. He was able to use poetry both as a kind of salve for the wounds of life, Mm. as well as a way to dig the wounds a little bit deeper to really feel the pain to get it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Well, which one are you going to start with? The funny one or the sad one? Um, what do you think? Maybe the sad one the sad first. One. Yeah. I and think so. And then a high one or... <laughs> um, so this is... <laughs> the title of this poem is Manic Depression. Um, and he wrote this um, in St. Luke's Hospital Psychiatric Wing. Um, here goes. Go for it. The pain is too much. A thousand grim winters grow in my head. In my ears, the sound of the coming dead. All seasons, all sane, all living, all pain. No opiate to lock still my senses. Only left the body locked tenses. Mm. The body locked tenses. tenses. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess it's. It's very like. Oh, yeah. Well, that's another great thing about Spike Milligan. He didn't write these long poems that take <laughs> 10 minutes waste to your read. Time. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, I just enjoy it because it's. And I enjoy it for the sparsity. And I think that's, I know, something that I really like in a good screenplay or something like that, where it's like you're just getting these one or two word sentences which are doing as much as like a 12 word sentence could do mm. and you're just getting these kind of snapshots and um and that is uh, the the form of that is a lot what um a depression can feel like it's just mm. like you don't even necessarily have the energy to be writing long lines it's almost like note taking yeah absolutely there is a kind of like yeah absolutely a note taking where you're like I don't know, this kind of the acceptance that things are these ways, which can mm. be the worst part of that kind of depression, is that it feels inevitable and it feels like um, it feels just the way the world is and will always be. Yeah. And so all seasons, all sane, all living, all pain. But yeah, should I read a funny one? Yeah, go for it. Um, this one's entitled Teeth. This may be a bit, um, anyway, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) English teeth, English teeth, shining in the sun, a part of British heritage, I, each and every one. English teeth, happy teeth, always having fun, clamping down on bits of fish and sausages half done. English teeth, hero's teeth. Hear them click and clack. Let's sing a song of praise to them. Three cheers for the brown, grey and black. It's a joke about how English people have bad teeth, guys. Get it? No, I like that because it's like the teeth are are like personified and they're just having a lovely time. They're not doing anything wrong. And also it's just like there's no depth to it. It's fantastic. There is. You can't go, yeah, yeah, over that one. There's no way that we could spend a podcast talking about it because it literally is just like rhyming couplets yeah a very simple structure Mm. and it has a punchline like that's you know the it sets up this expectation of like the patriotism that you feel about english teeth their happy teeth their hero's teeth Mm. and then 
at the end comes the joke that, oh, by the way, they're also disgusting. Yeah. And that is, you know, set up punchline structure. That's a joke. Mm-hmm. And that makes it entertaining because you finish the poem on a line which, I don't know, reframes everything you'd read up until that point, which is what a joke is. You set up a baseline and then you come in with this sucker punch, which is like what you thought is not what I was actually getting at. It's a surprise. Mm. And I think even if you're not writing something humorous, I think writing poetry with at least an understanding of how punchlines work can mean that you end up with a punchier poem Mm. and a poem that actually has a crescendo to it with the last thing that you hear actually delivering something which I don't know feels like it's come to this climactic point and yeah this is where this poem should have ended yeah it needed to end there yeah. I constantly feel like I'm reading poems where I'm like I wish it ended at like three lines earlier yeah what I mean, are you giving me here yeah yeah I think I'm extremely guilty of um just walking away mid-sentence in, mm. in my poems. I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm going to leave it there because that's mysterious. Mm. <laughs> Actually, I should have just stuck with it for a few more days and figured out how to resolve it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's, there's values in ending, ending a poem with a question because mm. that means you sit and think with it. But, I mean, we're not sitting and thinking with this poem because... There's nothing to it. It's not asking a question. It's a joke. And I think yeah. it's just as valid poetry. I don't know. There's a weird... There's a weird utilitarianism to poetry where it's like it should be performing some kind of social duty or something like that and mm. commentary or mm. getting you to think on it when... And this is, I guess, the weird arbitrary line that we draw between art and entertainment. Is it something which is getting you to think about the world or is it something that helps you escape from it? And, it, you know, both are very equally valid and they're also not necessarily separate. intrusion the press will they be on to us but they'll hound us like a pack of hounds <laughs> I'm not doing anything I'm just strolling up the beach with my discreetly pregnant Brazilian girlfriend <laughs> and then the boat appears with laden with paparazzi and I'll say you filth, filth. Take a photo of me if you must, yeah. but leave her out of it. Yeah. She didn't ask for any of this. She's just an ordinary lingerie model. <laughs>